Good morning, witches. This is the Witch Daily Show, coming to you from New Orleans, with host Tanya Brown. Our episodes span about 20 minutes long to give you just a little pop of magic. So, tune in, take a deep breath, and enjoy. We have a special segment today. We are talking with Morgan Daimler. Morgan is a witch who has been polytheist since the early 90s, following a path inspired by the Irish fairy faith, blended with neo-pagan witchcraft. Morgan teaches classes on Irish myth and magical practices, fairies, and related subjects in the United States and internationally. Morgan has been published in multiple anthologies, as well as Witches and Pagans magazine, Pagan Dawn magazine, Through Moon Books. Um, so, oh, and you have um, fiction books um, as well, fantasy, uh, paranormal romance, love, uh, called Between the Worlds. So, hi, Morgan. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be here talking with you this morning. Me too. So, I mentioned to you right before we got on that um, I pretty much know not a lot about the Fae, not more than, you know, a book I read when I was like 14 that like had some tips for witches in the Fae, um, which I have stuck to <laughs> for all these years. Um, and we get questions a lot because I do think it's a really fascinating um, subject. And uh, we just haven't been able to get somebody on who can really speak on it. So uh, I'm just super psyched to, you know, have you here. Yeah, I'm super psyched to be here. Um, it's a topic that I obviously have a lot of love for. <laughs> so I, I love talking about it. And I'm really excited to, to answer some questions and hopefully, you know, help people get a better understanding for the subject. Um, so I'm going to kind of tell you like what I remember from um, learning about the Fae in terms of witchcraft, which is going to be a very small amount. Um, but I'm super curious to hear um, how maybe a witch who works with Fae may differ in their practices than maybe someone who doesn't. Um, but from what I remember, and this is like, you know, the one book in small town country, Florida library. And um, you know, on witchcraft, and they, it had a section on the Fae, which I oh, I wish I could find this book again. It, like, kills me that I, I have never found it since. But basically, it says that, you know, working with the Fae is no small matter. It is a very huge commitment. Um, but that if you can form a really nice relationship with them, it can be really beneficial to your practice. And that they really like... Um, offerings at dawn with like milk and honey cakes and then I think time was also like something they really liked and that was kind of all I needed to hear because at 14 any book telling you well maybe that's not a good idea I was like well not for me yeah <laughs> you know that that's actually a pretty good summary like I would agree with the majority of that um I I think that you know there's there's sort of two main schools of thought that you'll tend to run into, you know, popularly when it comes to fairies. And one of them is the absolutely avoid at all costs, super dangerous, you know, fairies are scary. And then the other one is sort of the other extreme, which is the, you know, fairies are wonderful and nice and they just want to help everybody. And the truth is kind of in the middle. You know, we definitely have stories of, of types of fairies because fairy is a very wide sort of general term that can be dangerous. And um, they are certainly powerful enough, you know, if they want to, they can cause a lot of problems for a person. But we do also have stories of them being helpful and particularly with witches who sort of create a relationship with them. So I think the, the best approach is that sort of middle ground of just keep in mind that they're powerful and that, you know, they, they can potentially be dangerous, much like everything else in life, every other living thing, and um, that you want to be respectful and appropriate with them, but that it is possible to connect to them in a positive way. And, you know, there's there's benefits to doing that. So 
what would you say is kind of like the biggest benefit or is it very similar to how we would work with any sort of deity? There's kind of that relationship give and take. I think it's it's a little easier to compare it actually to like a relationship or a connection to another human. Um, not that they aren't powerful, and certainly there are many types of fairies that also used to be considered gods. It's sort of a very gray area sometimes in you know which category they're going to fall into. But in in my personal experience, having been you know a, a polytheist and a witch for longer than I want to publicly admit, but we'll just say for a long time, um, the gods tend to grade on more of a curve. I think like. The gods can be more forgiving, um, more flexible, more understanding that humans, you know, have human stuff that happens and, you know, sometimes things don't work out. Um, Whereas the fairies, and this is in my experience and, you know, across like all of folklore, they really aren't like that. They're not as, um, I would say not as forgiving because that sounds really harsh, but kind of. Um, They don't grade on a curve, like if you promise you're going to do something for them, then they expect you to do it. And it doesn't matter what happens that causes you to have problems or, you know, not be able to do the thing. Um, They're just looking at it like you you said you would do the thing (laughs) and they they expect it to be done. Um, So I do think that that's where some of the extra caution kind of comes in. But it is a little more in that way, like how it would be if you were working with another human, you know, when we work with other humans and they have expectations, you know, we really have to do our best to kind of live up to those expectations as much as we can. And when we can't, um, there's a lot of times going to be consequences, you know, even if it's our friends, if you promise you're going to go do something with them and then you can't do it, maybe they're not going to ask you, to do that again or they're not going to trust you in the same way whereas with the fairies if you promise you're going to do something and you don't do it there's going to be some more like tangible consequences um so i usually will encourage people to think of them the way you would think of like um humans around you and how you're interacting with them you know and being respectful not being overly demanding like you wouldn't like it if your neighbors were always coming over just telling you to give them your stuff and it's kind of the same with fairies. You know, you have to keep that in mind. I mean, that seems very fair. <laughs> I like, think it works well. Yeah. Um, you know, there, so there's a lot of stories. We actually did um, a few weeks ago on our show. We thought it would be really fun to do a little series on um, fae that I just personally feel like aren't talked about enough. There's a lot. Uh, so we... <laughs> So, yes, yeah, so we talked a little bit about, like, nymphs and brownies and changelings and then gnomes, which the gnomes were really fun because we learned that there is an international movement called Free the Gnomes and that people will steal gnomes to release them out into the wild. And that was just, like, a hoot. But um, it's interesting that you mentioned that, like, how the fae are categorized can kind of change. Uh, I saw this when we talked about nymphs they were um kind of they didn't use the word demigod but mm-hmm. it, how they were describing the nymphs kind of came off a little bit as like demigod um so like with all these stories that we hear uh we tend to hear that a lot of them are kind of tricksters mm-hmm. would you agree with this yeah um i would i think that even the more positive ones when we look at the stories are sort of known for appreciating mischief and, uh, you know, even the ones that don't necessarily, that aren't necessarily dangerous or don't mean harm um, can still cause a lot of stress and anxiety. Um, like there's a pretty well-known thing, at least where I am, with uh, people with house spirits, house fairies, um, stealing things like car keys and jewelry and, you know, sort of the the typical way you'd identify that it's that that's going on and not something else. It's like you put your car keys down on your counter and then you have to go somewhere and you go and your car keys are nowhere to be found. You tear your house apart, trying to find them, check absolutely everywhere. Finally give up, you know, completely freaking out. Like, what are you going to do? Your car keys are gone. And then you turn around and they're on the counter where they should have been the whole time, but they were definitely not there. (laughs) 
Um, and that's that's something that's happening with you know spirits that are are not considered like malicious, <laughs> um, but it seems to be that they just really appreciate um, sort of messing with people sometimes. So yeah, I would I would agree with that for sure. Tricksters. What would you say is kind of um, the benefits to working with the Fae as a witch? Sure. So I think you kind of hit on it a bit when you're talking about nymphs a minute ago with describing them as demigods or like demigods. Um, and I think that's something a lot of people don't necessarily understand about fairies these days because we have a lot of sort of Victorian and post-Victorian influence on how we imagine, you know, who and what fairies are. And people will sort of get into that mentality of the little tiny winged childlike spirit, the garden fairies, flower fairies, um, and sort of see them as very diminished, um, which again, that's like been going on for a long time, that sort of campaign to make them less. Um, but a lot of them, like I said, originally were gods, and even the ones that weren't, um, like they have a lot of different abilities to influence humans, particularly relating to luck and health. So of course, the negative side to this, because we'll just get that out of the way first, is they can do things like, you know, take your luck away. So just everything goes wrong for you. They can cause all sorts of different illnesses. Um, they can do things like, you know, cause madness. Um, they can kill people, you know, across the folklore we see that. But everything that they can do in sort of a negative sense to humans, they can also do in a positive sense. So they can give you really great luck. Like everything just always works out for you and somehow goes your way. They can um, heal. So if you're struggling with health issues, um, you know, we have stories and, you know, I have personal experience with this as well, where they can come in and heal things that aren't supposed to be healable. Um, you know, they can cause your life in general to just sort of be on a better track in a better place. Um, they're also sometimes associated with, with money, like improving financial situations for people. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about benefits, all of those things are awesome. <laughs> I don't think any of us, like, don't want to be luckier and healthier and have more money. Uh, like, those are all great. But everything with the good folk, everything with fairies, kind of comes down to balance and reciprocity. So it's this idea that if you're going to get something from them, you have to give something to them. And um, a lot of times when it comes down to the benefits of working with them, it comes down to, you know, what sort of relationship do you want to be in with these spirits? You know, what are you willing to give? What are you willing to do? Um, and then everything kind of is proportional with that, if that makes sense. If that's just not like the tale as old as time. You know, like, like truly. Um, now, something I've seen kind of debated, and when I say debated, I just mean like I, I've seen different uh, ideas of this. But are, and I, I guess, you know what, this is a fair question for literally any aspect of witchcraft ever of all times. But are the Fae physically perceived or are they more of like a energy? Sure. So this is a bit of a complicated answer, and I'm going to try not to get like too nerdy with this, I promise. But traditionally, um, and in my experience and in, in other like modern anecdotal accounts, they are perceived physically. So you would, you would actually see them. They would look as solid and real as anything or anyone else. Um, and, and a lot of the older stories, people didn't necessarily even realize that it was a fairy or it was one of the good folk that they were uh, encountering or dealing with initially. It kind of, they put the clues together during the experience and then figure out like, oh, this is not a human. <laughs> kind of have to take a different track with this. Um, but there was a movement called Theosophy in the late 19th century. And the, the woman, Madame Blavatsky, who was sort of the, the driving force behind that, she really did a lot of work that redefined how we understand fairies 
um, particularly in like modern witchcraft and modern paganism. She had a huge influence, which a lot of people aren't aware of. And she was a big advocate for the idea that these beings were not physical, that they were entirely energy, and that you, you could only experience them as energy. Um, she also had a whole idea that they didn't even have like any kind of form or perceived form until a human sort of gave it to them and imagined it for them. So what we kind of see today is this sort of split where people do still have physical experiences, encounters, but we also see a lot of people who describe these beings as purely energy or as sort of a, a sensation that they'll get in certain places, a perception. Um, so I think historically the answer would have been 100% yes, physical. In our modern world, I think people can encounter them in both ways. I guess that makes sense um, because, you know, they're interdimensional um, beings, correct? Or, you know, considered to be. So I guess similar to how maybe some people can see spirits and some people can't, or sometimes they choose to be seen and sometimes they can't. It kind of feels like the same rules could apply here in this instance. Yeah, it seems today to be something very similar. Um, and of course, everything with fairies gets super fun when we consider the fact that they sort of across belief are thought to have this ability, it's called glamour, that they can influence human perceptions. So they can make us see things that they want us to see. Um, they can also make us, you know, smell and, and touch like it's a full full sensory sort of thing. And we see this in stories of like um, a fairy woman is having a baby. They don't have a high birth rate, so they don't have their own midwives. So the fairy husband goes and gets a human midwife, you know, imports an expert, as it were. And the human midwife is brought in and she sees this, you know, grand, beautiful hall and everything is sort of rich and amazing. You know, just picture like the greatest thing you could picture, like velvet and silk and intricate carving and just amazing and so she goes in um, and helps deliver the baby and then is given this ointment to put on the baby's eyes is told not to get in her own eyes but of course she accidentally rubs an eye um, you know forgets and suddenly she can see through that fairy magic that enchantment that glamour and realizes that actually she's in this sort of like dingy room or a cave a lot of times it's a cave and that everything that she'd been seeing was actually just illusion. Um, you know, tangible, she could touch it, it would feel real, but once she can sort of see through it, she becomes aware that the situation is very, very different. And so anytime we're talking about fairies and whether they're real, you know, tangible, physical, or just energy, what do they look like, any of that, we kind of run into this problem of, you know, are we ever even perceiving them the way they actually are <laughs> or is it all sort of this this type of magic that they have that influences us uh, which is why I tend to lean into the camp of you know all of the above is correct you know whatever people experience is correct in some sense um I like that I'm uh, I am usually the same way too it's like listen I'm not here to rock any boats okay <laughs> We're all valid. <laughs> so my next question, it's kind of a dual question. Um, one, do the Fae exist in only certain parts of the world or are they everywhere? And my second question that I feel like could blend in is have, do you know, I'm, and if there's anyone who would know, I would think you would know. So, um, but do you know of any historical sources that, um, mention like fey like creatures sure um i think when we talk about fairies we're usually talking about mostly the celtic language speaking cultures which would be ireland scotland wales the isle of man cornwall Brittany, which is in northern france and sometimes more generally sort of western europe um you know you mentioned nymphs earlier uh those kind of get blended in. Um, England has a lot of fairy folklore and folk belief. And um, it's not uncommon with, you know, like um, France and uh, even Spain, Iceland, for people to talk about beings, you know, as fairies or to use the term fairies for them. 
Um, I do believe that those types of beings are global, that we see those sorts of beings kind of in every culture. Anywhere there's humans, you're going to have these beings. I hesitate to call them fairies in non-English speaking cultures um, because there's, there's going to be their own terms, their own names uh, for these beings in those places. So I tend to go with the term fairy-like to sort of imply that connection that these are very similar to what we would see, you know, in, in Europe in particular, that we would call fairies. Um, but they're, you know, in this other culture, so they have a, a slightly different uh, maybe understanding of them and a different name for them. But when we look sort of around the globe at any culture, um, you know, and pick a culture, it doesn't matter. Um, you're going to find this same sort of concept there of these beings that are in the human world, but not of the human world, you know, that sort of interdimensional aspect, um, that they are beings who can affect humans in positive ways or negative ways. They kind of have this symbiotic relationship with humanity, sometimes a little more antagonistic, sometimes a little more helpful. Like, you know, if we had a list of things we would use to describe European fairies and we took it to like Korea and looked at the Yojang, which are sometimes considered to be, you know, sort of a rough equivalent to, to fairies. Or we went to like some of the different um, indigenous cultures in the Americas and looked at like the, the Yonitsundi or the Mekhiwisug. We'd still be checking all those same boxes we just wouldn't necessarily use the word fairy for them. Does that make sense? Oh, completely. Um, yeah, because our understanding of how we're defining that category is so culturally, and it's weird imposing it on someone else's culture, for sure. Yeah, and I think when we use the word fairy for, you know, a named being in a completely different culture, we have to, have to be very cautious because there's a lot of baggage with that word. Mm. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, even if we're talking about like the Irish fairies, because, um, you know, fairy obviously is an English word that we're using for these Irish beings, you're still bringing in some implications that don't necessarily line up with what those beings actually are in Irish folklore. Um, so that gets so much worse when we're taking it like completely to a totally different culture, a non-European culture. So just something we have to be cautious of, I think. But definitely we find the same concepts that same general sort of being kind of everywhere. Um, and as to, to older historical sources, yeah, there's so many. Um, the oldest um, Irish language story that talks about the, the Aishi, the people of the, the fairy hills, I think dates back to like the seventh or ninth century. Um, and that's a story called The Adventures of Kanla. Um, and we have a lot of written material, um, particularly from like the 18th and 19th century, because it got very trendy around then for people to want to record these stories and this folklore. Um, so there's, there's a lot to choose from. Um, people who are interested in it, I usually try to point them to the work of Catherine Briggs. Um, she was a folklorist who was writing in the, the mid 20th century. It sounds really weird to say that, by the way, like it was that long ago, but the mid 20th century. And um, she did a lot of work with fairy lore and fairy belief. And she's an excellent resource, both for like lists of different kinds of fairies. She has a, a fairy dictionary, which is really good. But she also has some other work where she just talks about like common themes that we find, like time, time differences between the human world and the world of fairy, um, that borrowed midwife story, um, which is found across like a bunch of different cultures in Europe. Um, she talks about all of that stuff. So she's a really good place to start if you're interested in the subject. You said that was Catherine Brace? Briggs. Briggs. B-R-I-G-G-S. Side question. Um, are banshees considered a part of the Fae? Or are they just like a spirit? That is such a great question. And this is also a bit debated. Well, it's <laughs> so <insane. laughs> it's, it's always fun. Controversy. You gotta love it. Um, I do Banshee, love it. Banshee in Irish actually means fairy woman. That's what the literal translation would be. Um, 
it gets a little complicated when you dig into the folklore because not all not every banshee would be um, a fairy necessarily like we do have stories of like human women who die um, particularly in childbirth and then sort of come back and, and hang around as a banshee until their natural death would have occurred like that's a sort of a motif we find with the banshee but we do also find accounts where they are definitely fairies um women of the she women of the the fairy hills and um so my opinion tends to be that yes we would we would put them in that category um other people feel because that word fairy gets kind of loaded sometimes um that they would be sort of a separate a separate kind of a thing um i have a hard time doing that just because fairies in the translation of the name <laughs> so it's kind of already right there uh, but then we get back into that whole using the word fairy for Irish spirits, and that gets a little complicated. So it's messy, is the answer. It's all very messy. Well, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, I'm glad you asked, too, because I, I think a lot of people just kind of make assumptions with the Banshee. Um, you know, she has a lot of very fascinating folklore and a lot of stories to her. And I think what kind of makes it into popular culture is just the idea that she shows up to to cry and to to mourn before a death happens. And she's got a lot of other stuff going on, too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Banshee. I always complain on the show about how there's no good Banshee jewelry out there. <laughs> and, how, and how that's not fair. Uh, uh, well, one of my next questions is, um, and you kind of you kind of touched on this. Uh, a little bit with, with the glamour idea, but um, I'm kind of curious about it in like a, maybe a more literal sense. Um, but do you think uh, the Fae can take on human form? Sure. So I think that we definitely see them appearing in a very human-like way. Um, so they would look very human. Um, if that's what we mean by human form. Uh, in the bulk of the older folklore, and even up through today, the majority of time when people were seeing what we would call fairies, um, they actually do look very human. Um, there wasn't necessarily anything physically about them that distinguished them. Um, we do have accounts of beings that were like, you know, 18 inches high or three feet high, kind of lumped into this grouping of fairies. But a lot of the stories, you know, the, the being would be, you know, five feet tall, six feet tall. Um, they didn't have pointed ears, that sort of more modern concept attached to them. Um, they didn't have wings. That's another sort of more modern idea that, that's come around. Um, so you would see something that at first glance would look very human. And, uh, you know, to the point that in some folklore, like in uh, Scandinavia, uh, Scandinavian countries, there are these beings called the Huldra, uh, which we would loosely consider a type of fairy. And they look very much just like your average woman, your average person, but they were said to have hollow backs. So the idea is that the, the only way you could tell is you'd have to either get them to turn around or see them from behind or you have to get close enough to touch them. And then you'd see that they weren't actually human. Um, so we see a lot of stuff like that going on. And the same thing in modern accounts. There's a really um, cool thing that happened. It's called the fairy census. Um, it was done by some people in academia. But it sort of was just asking anyone who'd had a fairy experience to write in about their experience. And they, they kind of record it all. You can find it free online. It's, it's a really awesome thing to read through. But there's some accounts, like there was a woman who described seeing a man who was running. Um, they were sort of out uh, at one of the, the Neolithic sites um, where the woman lived. And she said he looked like a, a perfectly ordinary human except for his hair. Because she said his hair looked like hematite. It was that sort of very metallic, um, gray, um, impossible, like even if humans that color their hair, like you're never going to get that sort of a color. Um, it's just not possible in humans. 
um, and that he had appeared and disappeared in a way that was sort of physically impossible, which was what clued her in that he wasn't actually human. <laughs> so that's the sort of thing we see. Um, and this, this happened, I want to say, like maybe 10 years ago. That's the sort of thing we see when people encounter fairies. Um, either there's something about them that's just physically impossible that sets them off from a, an ordinary human or they do things like they appear out of nowhere, disappear into nowhere, um, and that clearly humans can't do. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I guess that's something I hadn't thought about. But when you do think about it, that is sometimes kind of how it's depicted. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, another question I have, and this is something I've heard, but I really have no frame of reference for. Um, do you ascri um, ascribe to the beliefs of the seedly and unseedly fae? And what is this? Sure. So seedly and unseedly are terms that come to us from Scotland. Um, they're actually part of the, the Scots language, not to be confused with Scottish Gaelic, which is also a different language in Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, Scots has these two words, seedly and unseedly. Seedly means like fortunate, blessed, lucky. And unseely means like unlucky, ungodly, sort of the opposite <laughs> of seely. And what we find is that, and I probably should have said this at the beginning, actually, people used to be, and a lot of them still are, um, averse to using the word fairy. It's thought that they don't like that word, and if they hear it, they'll get upset, and you don't want that. So we have all of these euphemisms that were used. Um, and I know I've used the good folk a few times uh, talking to you. So you have like the good folk, the shining ones, um, fair folk, the gentry. And Seely was something that was originally used as a euphemism in Scotland. So we see this idea of these Seely spirits, the Seely court, meaning the, the fairies. Um, and then about the mid 19th century, the idea of the unseely sort of starts to come in. And the concept is basically that you have the seely court, which is more benevolent, um, less inclined to harm humans, although they will, but they won't. That's not their first thing that they're going to do. Um, and they usually give you a warning before they do anything. And then you have the unseely, who are kind of the ones that are the most against humanity. They're not, you know, members of the human fan club. And a lot of them are the ones that are the more um, predatory towards humans. So what type of being would fall into each category a lot of times is fluid because it really was based on how they were interacting with humans. Like if they're being more positive and, you know, giving you a warning before they get upset with you, then you would consider them seely. And if they were just immediately trying to eat you, then they would be unseely. Uh, but we have stories of, of beings who kind of can go back and forth between the two categories. It's a little bit fluid. Um, it, we almost might consider it, you know, to use a modern analogy in the U.S., almost like political parties. You know, like you're pretty much going to belong to one or the other, but you can change your mind and, and go to a different one if you want to. Um, and I think that that is a pretty useful way, honestly, to understand fairies is that you have some that are more, you know, likely to be wanting to help you. And then you have others that just are really not, um, not fans of humans, <laughs> you know? Um, and I don't, know that people necessarily always use the terms correctly today because it got really popular in urban fantasy and there's been this idea in the last 10 years or so that sort of flips the script a bit um that says you know the seely are the really bad dangerous ones the unseely are actually the good ones and that's a little mirror universe thing going on um but i think in general if fairies interest you that it can be helpful to sort of look at them as those two categories you know, the the ones that are likely to help humans and the ones that are likely to have humans on the menu. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and that makes sense. I mean, even when we look at just kind of like the really popular um, types of fae, they tend to lean into, you know, two different camps. Yep. So that makes, so that makes sense. 
Yeah. And I think it's, it's something that just started that way organically. Like people were looking and they were like, okay, well, you know, this particular type of being is willing to help me and, you know, maybe heal my wife's illness. And this particular type of being wants to drown me. So, you know, totally, totally different concepts. Um, what is, and this is kind of my last generic question before I get into, um, more specifically, uh, which related questions, but, um, what is the biggest misconception you've noticed about the Fae that like, if only you could just tell everybody. Sure. Um, I think I've touched on it a little bit already and it, it really is that idea that there are these tiny winged benevolent sort of nature spirits, um, which isn't to say that that doesn't necessarily exist, but just that that's not the entirety of what they are. Um, I've talked to people who that's the only sort of being they've ever encountered. Like that's their, their sum total for fairies, but you know, there's so much more out there. And when we talk about fairies, it's, it's such a wide category and they are shapeshifters and we do have um, positive and negative experiences that happen, um, you know, pleasant things, dangerous things. It's kind of all over the board. So I think that's probably the biggest misconception I see is sort of pigeonholing them into just that one sort of little box when they're actually just so much more complex and, and complicated Um you know, a lot of times another analogy I'll use is to say that, you know, when you think about fairies, it's like talking about animals. You know, you have such a range in that. You know, you could be talking about mice, you could be talking about whales or bears. And how you interact with each of those animals is going to be very different, you know, particularly if you want to keep all of your limbs attached. And it's kind of the same with fairies. If we could just get into a place of not seeing them just as that one tiny little specific thing that's what I would love um yeah for sure I actually saw this great thing that kind of went into why they think that kind of happened um this kind of like you know sanitization of um the fae Mm uh and it's really interesting but yeah I can definitely I can definitely see that I blame um oh the Victorians yes I blame the Victorians Um, so there's this idea that uh, some witches believe that they are descendants of Fae. Um, have you heard of this? And is it something you uh, believe? And like, how do people deduce this? So, believe it or not, actually, you'll probably believe it because it's probably not that surprising. The most common thing that I get asked has to do with this. Is it possible to have fairy ancestry or is it possible for humans and fairies to, we'll just say have a physical relationship. We'll put it that way. And it always surprises people that the answer is actually yes. Um, Across all of the folklore and anecdotal accounts and, and all of that, even into today, there's always been this idea that, you know, sometimes fairies will steal humans Um, And in some cases, they steal them in order to increase the population, let's just say. And also that we have stories of humans who stay in the human world, but that have children that don't have human parentage, we'll just say. Um, And this is something we find across like a whole range of different uh, European cultures. Um, You know, it's not just like limited to any one particular place. And it's sort of this idea that um, there's some kind of compatibility there that causes this to happen um, when it comes to the children that are produced. You know, there's there's a whole range of possibilities according to various different stories. I've never heard it linked specifically with witches, like the idea that um, if you're a witch, you would have this connection or if you have this connection, you would be more inclined to magical practice. Um, there certainly is at least one account in the Norse material of a woman who was born. Um, she's like the half-sister of the, the story's main character, who was supposed to have had a father among the elves. 
and she definitely had some magical stuff going on. Um, so I wouldn't, I guess I'd say I wouldn't rule it out <laughs> as a possibility. Like if you feel that maybe that's uh, something you have going on. Um, again, as we've established, I, I don't judge. Um, you know, there's certainly a lot of precedent for it across folklore and folk belief. That's uh, a very common story that you'll hear. Um, I don't think it's necessary. I'll put it that way. Like, I don't think you have to have that in order to be a witch or to be drawn to witchcraft or practice it. Um, as to how you would find out, um, I really think that that comes down to you personally and um, like anything else, figuring out our identity, like other people can't tell you, you know, things like, you know, are you straight? Are you not? Like someone else can't dictate that to you. <laughs> that's, that's an internal thing. Um, and I think it's the same with this. Like I've run across a lot of people who have someone um, tell them through whatever a tarot reading and aura reading that they think the person has this, this non-human ancestry. Um, but I don't think we should put too much weight in stuff like that because I think that it's an internal thing. Um, you know, I think it's something that you sort of come to in your own time if it's there. I think that makes a lot of, like, um, a lot of sense. It's like, um, you know, when people kind of try to figure out if they're a witch, you know, like the, you know, Cosmo articles, not going to help you a whole hell of a lot. Like you either know inside or you don't, or, you know, same with like any sort of identity, like you said, like, um, sexual gender, et cetera. Like, it's just, you know, if you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And comparing it to, to knowing if you're a witch is perfect because it is, it's, you can take a quiz and it can tell you, yes, you should be a witch. Um, you could, you know, read a book that says if you're reading this book, it means you are a witch. Um, the 90s was a, an interesting time to be alive. But um, nothing from the outside is going to make that true if, if it isn't there on the inside, you know. And it's fine if it is and it's fine if it isn't, you know, especially when it comes to the thing like the fairy ancestry like I said it's not necessary you don't have to have that um, in order to be a witch or even if you want to practice a kind of witchcraft that focuses on fairies you don't have to have that it's not required um, you know by by most accounts given how common these stories are I would suspect that the majority of people today could probably find some story back in their family that says they have this connection. Like there's there's multiple Irish families that are supposedly descended from different banshee um, or you know members of the, the two-headed Annan, the gods. So it's not like it's it would be exceptionally rare, let me put it that way. Um, but it's not necessary. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I definitely love the banshee thing. Um like as someone who comes from a few different Mick lines. I love to be like, yes, I have a banshee and she's the best. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so we're we are wrapping up. So I, I appreciate uh, us taking so much of your time today. Um, so one question I have, and it's going to lead into another question. Um, but let's say there are witches listening who maybe have just like have always been kind of curious about working with the Fae, but are just like wholly unfamiliar. Um, and they're kind of curious about dipping their toe into it. Um, other than of course, you know, um, learning the lore and um, research, how do you think is the best way to start actionably working with them? Like um, doing offerings and if so, like what's appropriate? Sure. So I definitely always encourage people to start with some of the folklore and at least get a sense for like the etiquette because fairies, even though they look very human, they aren't human. And sometimes their expectations or the way they react to things are not going to be what humans expect. So it's good to sort of know that going in. Um, and again, that not grading on a curve thing. Um, I always encourage people starting out, don't make any promises um, offerings are a great way to start, but don't start by saying, I'm going to do this every week or, you know, once a month, I will give you this. Because again, 
if you miss a month, if you're sick or if you, you know, can't afford it or you change your mind, they're not going to be happy. So you're better off to just not make like a big statement that this is what you're going to do and just do it. Um, and what I usually recommend, the most common offerings we find across like the breadth of folklore are things relating to dairy. So butter, milk, cream, anything like that. Um, honey uh, would also be a good option. Um, cakes and bread. For people who are vegan, um, I do recommend avoiding things that are overly processed or chemicals. So like I wouldn't necessarily recommend almond milk or soy milk as a dairy alternative, but fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, um, things like that. Songs, if you are, feel like you're a good singer, um, poetry, artwork, um, all of those are potentially good offerings. Uh, again, if like the food options don't work for you. Um, and just when you make it, just say something like, you know, I am giving this to all the goodly inclined fairies that might want to have a friendship with me. You could say that more eloquently than I just did, but, you know, something to that effect. You do want to specify your, you know, you're giving it to the ones that are, are goodly inclined, that are already sort of friendly towards you, <laughs> not just anything that's out there. Um, and that you're doing it to sort of build a friendship, you know, that you're giving it to them in hopes of a friendship developing, sort of set that, that intention, that boundary. Um, and yeah, then just see, see where it goes. Usually I find that works pretty well. So. Silly question. Um, Those are the best kind. Yeah. Cause I'm just thinking like, um, where, like, where's the best place to leave these offerings? Sure. So there's two different schools of thought here. Um, in Ireland, you would never invite these beings into your house. There's mm -hmm. a lot of just keep them out for some very good reasons. In other places, though, it, there are certain offerings that would be left in the home. So sort of, I guess, use your own discretion with that. Um, if you can put it outside, that is perfectly fine. Just make sure whatever you're putting outside is safe for the local wildlife. Um, the idea, the thought with the offerings, again, cross-culturally, is that they don't necessarily take the physical item, but they take the, the essence out of it. Um, you know, there's stories in, in Ireland and Scotland of food offerings that the essence gets taken out and the food, like, immediately spoils or gets weird because sort of all that value, that soul, if you will, is what they take out. Um, but there's also a lot of stories that say, you know, if animals eat it, it's, it's fine. Um, that's not considered a bad thing. It might not be great for the animal, but, you know, on a metaphysical level, but it's not something that you would want to make sure like, oh, don't put it somewhere where animals can get to it. That's going to happen. Um, so just be, be careful with that. Um, also because of that, if you do put it inside, you don't have to have any like special disposal you know, it doesn't need to be this this ritualistic bury it in the earth when you're done with it kind of thing. Sort of leave it out for like 12 to 24 hours um, in the house or outside. And after that point, it's thought that they've taken what they want to take from it. So whatever's left is sort of like the candy wrapper portion. Um, and you can dispose of that in, in whatever way works for you. Um, question from our, um, one of our listeners, Anna, Anna says, and I love this, is it okay to not really work with the Fae magically, but maybe just want to leave them gifts here and there as a general gesture? Sure. That's actually, I think a much more common way to approach it. Um, like if we were sort of breaking it down into how people interact with the good folk, the, the majority of people, um, you know, not just witches, but in general, who believe in them and interact with them would be protecting against them, against their interference with stuff. The next thing after that, though, would be get, leaving offerings. Um, you know, it's a sign of respect. It's a way to sort of build a friendship, to say that you're you're cool with them being around um, and you want them to be around. Um, and then only after that would you get the the much smaller percentage of people who are trying to, like, actively engage and have a sort of what we might call a working relationship um, or a stronger connection to them. 
So yeah, just, just giving them offerings is definitely the much more common approach. So nothing wrong with that. Uh, last question from listener Donna Lynn. Donna Lynn says, uh, for the Fae, when moving to a new location, what's the best way to honor Fae and spirits who dwell in your home? So wait, can Fae dwell in your home? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, again, like there's there's a little variation regionally and culturally, but um, it's a pretty widespread idea. You find it in Iceland and Germany and Scotland and England that um, we have these different sorts of house fairies, fairies that would be with us, around us, in our house, in our home. Um, in my experience, the best thing when you're moving is before you move, let the, the beings that are around you know. Um, people always feel silly talking out loud, but just, you know, stand in the middle of the house and say, we're getting ready to move. You know, my, my gratitude to anything here that has been my friend while I was here. Um, if you're comfortable, you could also say, like, anything that wants to come with me to the new home is welcome. I'll use your discretion if you want to do that or not. Um, and then there's several different folk traditions when you move into a new place of going the night before you would actually move in. Um, like, before you actually start living there. And leaving out a little offering or um, setting something up to see if... Um, the spirits that are there will be happy that you're moving in. Um, and you, what I would recommend is going in and just saying something like, you know, I'm going to be living here from now on. I'm moving in tomorrow. Um, I want to be on good terms with everything that's already here. So here's your welcome gift, <laughs> you know, and, and put out whatever you want to put out. Um, and, you know, just sort of, sort of, again, set up that intention, put that out there to the space and to the spirits that are in that space that you're going to be moving in and you you want to have a positive relationship with what's there. So you had a book uh, released in January, a 21st century fairy. Um, you have quite a few books on the Fae. So if if some of our listeners who are listening right now are just feeling super inspired after this interview and it's just like, I really want to learn more, which one of your books should they start with if they have no no knowledge? My, my recommendation um, across the board for people uh, who are interested in my work and in fairies and are just starting out or who have some experience but are interested in, in my work with fairies, I have a book called Fairies, A Guide to the Celtic Fair Folk. Um, it's available in paperback. It's also available in audiobook because um, I know a lot of people love audiobooks. Um, and that's the one I recommend uh, for people just starting. It, it kind of covers all the important bases. It covers the etiquette. It sort of covers who and what they are, how we can engage with them in positive ways. I think I have something in there about how to tell if it's a fairy or a ghost if you're having issues in your home. Um, you would be surprised how often people assume it's a ghost when it's not. And you have to interact sure. with those spirits very differently. So it's useful. Oh, yeah. 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 Even, even when you were saying before about how, like, um, how you have to talk to them. I'm like, that is not how I talk to the ghosts in this house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's funny because I'll sometimes watch those paranormal, like, ghost hunting shows. And there are certain times where I can tell what they're interacting with is, is probably a fairy and they get that attitude you get with ghosts, you know, trying to like aggravate it. And I'm like, Oh no, Oh no, this is not going to end well. And they're mean on those shows. They are. They're not very nice. I don't know if you remember back in like the OG days of like ghost hunting television, um, like before all the shows existed and there was just the one show and it was ghost hunters, but they did an international where they went to, um, like, Oh, I don't know where, but like where Faye is a very common belief. And like the people there had to like teach them, like, this is how you correctly speak to the spirits. And it was really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I have certainly also seen a show that went to, um, some places in Ireland and did not engage with the local people about how to correctly interact with things and was being much more, um, aggressive and had some, some really intense, like terrifying things happen. 
because I think we can all guess which show that is. I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of listeners are like, mm, I know exactly which episode that is. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a different. Um, like if you have a ghost and you're having problems with it in your house, a lot of times it is a good idea to be very like not aggressive but assertive. Like I live here now. This is my space. We need to work this out. But you have to stop your nonsense or you know you're you're gonna be out you can't do that with fairies (laughs) that will not end well i swear i like walk out like a mom and i'm like what are we doing here what is happening what do you think's going on (laughs) kid cannot talk to the bay that way not not usually (laughs) not (laughs) successfully and it's actually very very hard to banish fairies um, for anyone who's now contemplating, like, they might be in a situation where that needs to happen. It, it can be done, but it's extremely difficult. And really, it's like your option of last resort. You want to do everything else first before you even contemplate going to that. Um, it wouldn't even occur to me that that's an option that yeah. you could banish. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Yeah, I guess. if Yeah, wow. There's, there's been a few instances where I've seen people who have to resort to that, but it's usually cases where, like, people are being physically harmed. Um, and unlike ghosts, when, when fairies get to that level of stuff, like, they, they don't mess around. <laughs> um, and you can, you can really seriously be injured. But I don't recommend people try that in general. And usually, like, everything else, bribery is a great option. Um, <laughs> You have a lot of other things you can do first before you get to that. Uh, you also have a high fantasy novel coming out at the end of this month, uh, Into Shadow. Um, that's very exciting. I'm super excited about that, yeah. For all of our book listeners, which we we have a quite a few of uh, listeners who love a good fiction book. So that's super exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I wanted to write a book. I read a lot, read a lot in general, but I read a lot particularly of urban fantasy and high fantasy. And I kind of realized with the high fantasy, particularly if you have like a female presenting main character, they're almost always very young. They're always really attractive and usually thin and able-bodied, which there's nothing wrong with any of those things necessarily. But I wanted to write something where the main character, you know, is in her later 30s, has had kids, is overweight, has glasses, she can't see without her glasses. Um, you know, I wanted to write something that I felt was more relatable. Um, I feel like I just described myself a little bit, actually. But I wanted to write something that was more relatable. And I wanted to write something that showed that, like, you can still be the hero, even if you're almost 40 and blind without your glasses and overweight, you know, it's not a limited category. Um, So it's a story about a woman who sort of unintentionally gets put in this position of having to go on this world saving quest, um, despite feeling very unqualified to do so and uh, ends up doing a pretty good job of it, I think. And, you know, with her friends and assorted shenanigans that occur along the way. Uh, well, that sounds very exciting, and we're definitely going to put links to both uh, books and the first one you mentioned um, uh, for beginner uh, people who may be curious in our episode description. So if, if any of our listeners are curious or interested, um, definitely check that out, uh, and I'll probably add it to the link tree as well um, if you're curious. Uh, so thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to say that we haven't covered? Oh, we covered a lot of great ground. I thought those were some really excellent questions. So, you know, hopefully it's given people a better idea of, you know, what fairies are and and what they can do and how to interact with them. So, yeah, I had a great time. Thank you for having me on. Witches, we hope you have a wonderful day full of joy and gentleness and confidence. Links for this week's episodes, our website, Patreon, along with a free daily card pull can be found at witchpod.com. One stop for everything we talk about. Now, take one more deep breath and have a great day.